This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the world's largest plane has seemingly been destroyed in Ukraine. Dr. Billy Allen with the Royal Military College of Canada tells us the incredible engineering behind the AN-225 and what Ukraine's Air Force looks like and how it stacks up against the Russians. We get an update from inside Ukraine with Mikhailo Zernikov, a lawmaker and judicial reform advocate, former lawyer and judge. He shares how the international response to the war is encouraging to Ukrainians. We discuss the role Belarus has in the conflict and what Ukrainians need from Canadians and more. Andy Andy Barrar is on the shift. He's achieved victory in building his smart home garden. He wanted to have an automatic watering garden. This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. We're going to Ukraine. Mikhailo Zernikov is with us on the program on the telephone. Mikhailo, are you there? Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm here. It's Mikhailo, actually. Mikhailo, thank you very much. Yes. You want to know something, Mikhailo? I have never met a Mikhailo until I met you, which there I assume go. through trans through translations, it's very similar to a Michael name in English. Yeah, Would that yes, be fair? It is, it is basically the same name, yeah, but our version, same as yeah. uh, you know, you know, Mikhail and Miguel. Uh, you you find this you find this in many in many languages. I have met. Um, Michaelo, see now I've got myself confused. Correct me again, Michaelo. It's Michaelo. It's Ah. Michaelo. Okay, I'm going to write that down yeah. on the I. Michaelo. Uh, so now I've met three Michaelos um, in go. the last week or so. So this is this is amazing for me. And I know when I speak to this Michaelo that your world uh, has been turned upside down. I wanted to share with yes. you some of the things that you've given to me. You've helped me and I think our audience through the course of the last few days understand what freedom looks like, what courage looks like. You've helped us understand what matters in conversation. You've helped us understand what leadership looks like. And you've really helped us understand. I have learned so much about Ukrainian culture because of our inquisitiveness into just your country alone. And now I realize, yeah. and I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing the war part. We'll talk about that. But even the sunflowers alone, the notion that the world could be planting sunflowers this summer as a show of um, uh, allegiance to Ukraine, the world is learning Ukraine now. And uh, that's a perhaps a, a positive look on what's going on. And it's disappointing. It's taken so long for the world to get to know Ukraine. But we truly are starting to understand your country. And it's beautiful, Mikhailo. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. I, I have the same feeling, you know, uh, it looks now, of course, it's still, you know, very dangerous and very volatile and we need all the help, uh, you know, you, you guys can provide and we're very grateful to all the help you have provided so far. Uh, but yeah, it looks like we are, you know, we, we, we're standing, we are defending ourselves and we're doing that successfully. And, you know, with your help, I think it's, we're going to prevail sooner or later and we're not only going to survive, but we also learned a lot about ourselves actually during these uh, times and it's very good that the world is learning about Ukraine and you know it feels on one hand that we have shown to ourselves and to the world what we're what we're worth what we are like and at the same time we kind of reminded Europe and the free world what values it is about and uh, how to not forget what these values are and how to protect them and how to defend them because basically what these values are what the you know modern civilized world is built on and if we if we don't protect them if we don't you know keep them 
if we don't cherish them, then, you know, the whole civilization is shaking and trembling as we see. So it is extremely important to, you know, to not forget what it's all about and to not forget what, what brought the world, um, you know, prosperity and progress and to really unite and to fight back and to defend it and then to continue building um, the world, uh, the best world that we will be all living in. We had a guest on, Mikhailo, from a couple of hours ago. He's from Canberra, Australia, and we shared some of the stories and impact that you've given to me uh, with him um, from Canberra, and he, he shares their perspective down there. Like, your words are carrying around the world as well, and I just want you to know that you taking the time to um, to, to share this, that um, that you 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 have given me that. You know, like you and it, those words have carried not only through across Canada on this channel, but through Australia as well. And and it's it's absolutely remarkable what you're doing. And let's create some context for everybody, Mikhailo, so you, so you can understand um, what what you're going through. You have asked for privacy on your location um, for uh, many reasons. Can you help us understand without giving away that location stuff what you are seeing, uh, whether it is through the radio, through the TV, or yourself? What is going on yeah. right now where you are? Well, yeah, there's there's lots of means. First of all, you, you have to understand. Well, there's there's a number of reasons why it. I, I can say I'm in in, in the safer um, uh, parts of Ukraine, which are in the west. Um, still, there's you know there's. Um, um, Announcements of possible airstrikes pretty much three, four times a day. Um, there's uh, uh, major security concerns. There's uh, groups of uh, Russian insurgents uh, uh, operating, uh, you know, around. And, uh, you know, it's not it's nowhere near safe right now. I, I mean, pretty much every, anywhere in Ukraine. Obviously, there are safer zones. There are less less safe zones. My native city, Kharkiv, is being bombarded is being shelled because they cannot they cannot take it by force by you no know, by infantry uh, they're shelling it with grads with with uh, you know with missiles uh, and they're targeting residential areas um, those are war crimes obviously uh, they're killing people peaceful people who just you know were out of sh- of the shelters for several minutes to bring food and water uh, to their to their homes now they're dead uh, they're shelling, um, of course, they're shelling the, the military establishments. Just today, about 70 people were killed uh, this way, just in one place. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's ugly. It's uh, war crimes. It's real war in the heart of Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, Russia, Russia is just, um, you know, it's it's. Uh, they say it's it's the words that the English language is borrowing from, um, um, you know, from uh, from other languages that, that describe this culture. And you know, for, for Russian, it's been vodka, Sputnik, and pogrom. And you know, uh, the, 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 obviously, the Russian space program is is you know it, it, it had better days, and now it's uh, with you know with the development of private. Um, space exploration i think it's 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 going you know where it's, where it's going and now we're just left with with what can pogrom and that's essentially what russia is doing right now 
Tell me about Belarus. One of the uh, conversation pieces that has really come up, of course, the first invitation for peace talks was in Minsk, and then that was, uh, I mean, that was a really bad idea. And um, and your president, um, Zelensky, said no. Then the talks, of course, on the border, so that that is better. Um, Belarus has been, in the last I'm going to say 36 hours in the, the news that we're hearing mm-hmm. here, Mikhailo, is that Belarus has really been thrown into the Russia bucket now as just being complicit completely. Now, with your background um, in and around the judicial system, are you seeing, like, is this normal that the Belarus was really still just a puppet of Russia? We haven't heard and learned a whole lot about Belarus. Well, uh, yeah, it is sad because uh, we know whenever whenever I had a war with uh, with Belarusian people, now it seems like we are. Um, of course, we don't. You know, we try still not to see it like this, to not be, to not stay enemies for centuries. After that, uh, and of course, it is the uh, decision of the Belarusian uh, regime, or should I say, Belarusian, because it, essentially, right now, this unfortunately for what, what you're saying, yeah, for about that amount of hours, that number of hours, there's no. There's no Belarusian statehood anymore. They, they voted on a referendum that they uh, want to include, uh, um, you know, the amendments to the constitution that basically makes them one state with Russia, and uh, that uh, that is very that is very sad and unfortunate. There was a you know a, a small glimpse of uh, kind of hope. Uh, what about two years ago in Belarus, if I'm not mistaken, when there were protests against uh, Lukashenko, the current dictator president, the current self-named president because you know there's a lot of indications that he lost the presidential vote and uh, but uh, his you know his army and his kgb that is still called officially kgb uh in um, in belarus basically made it uh, you know just drew drew a number that he he got 80 percent of votes or whatever that was and he by force um keeps the country uh, under his effective control uh no basically no civilized nation recognizes him as a as, as a um, democratically, democratically elected president, um, and <clears throat> unfortunately, these protests, the, the, the Belarusians took took to the streets. Um, a lot of people thought there was, you know, they had their own Maidan, they had their own, they're having their own revolution. They're going to overthrow the dictator. Didn't happen. Um, it, it was it was very peaceful because, well, not because, but I mean, it was very peaceful, and it's good it was peaceful, uh, but it wasn't effective. I mean, the peaceful protests, you know, people gathered in the streets and then they. Uh, I, I think the, the just it just it just lacked energy and just lacked um, the, the, the decisiveness the, these protests to you know to really overthrow the regime and now uh, both nations are suffering the direct consequences of you know unfortunately uh, on one hand uh, the Belarusian dictator being you know dictator on one on the other hand unfortunately the the ineffectiveness of these protests and uh, um, you know, the, 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 the something what was lacking with uh, with brave Belarusian people to be a little bit more brave to um, you know to to, to, to finish the, to finish the job and and to to really uh, you know establish the the political power that they uh, that that is democratic. The uh, irony does not escape me, uh, Mikhailo, that the. Um that the number of votes that they got in Belarus was very similar to the number of votes that Putin got in his last election. Like the numbers weren't very far apart. So it seems to be a pretty arbitrary yeah. trend. If you, if that, you see what I'm saying, 
yeah, I mean that's that's quite possible. That I mean, essentially, it's the the, the same uh, secret service or the same uh, um, you know style of operation of of, of these guys that uh, they they don't even change the number in the you know in in, in the documents, and it's just why yeah. why bother? It is just write eighty percent, and you know who cares? That's that's their attitude. Yeah, it seems to be uh it seems to be so consistent. Um you think that they would at least change the number. You're absolutely right. Mikhailo is in uh Ukraine. Now your background, you are a former lawyer and judge. Judicial reform is a big part of your world. And it made me curious. Yes. I thought about you a lot this weekend because I thought your your stand that you've shared with us where you take and you want to cre- be part of creating a non-corrupt proper democracy in Ukraine, in Kyiv, and working hard to do that. That is my understanding of what you're out to do. And this must be the a difficult thing to see happen because of all the work that has been done in the last 30 years, roughly, um, to get to this point. At the same time, yeah. though, all of this has unified the entire country to accelerate and push this forward into democracy and all the things that you've been fighting for, that must be bittersweet, as we would call it in English. Um, that would be uh, extremely difficult to watch. But at the same time, everything that you've hoped for is starting to get unified behind you. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're getting it absolutely right. I mean, I tear up. I'm not a, I'm not a very emotional a very emotional person, but but I do literally tear up when i when i look at at, at my president and at, at the you know the, the the guys in in the government the decisions that they're taking and they're making and it's and it's so 101 percent um according to what you know what what it should be and you know the courage of these people and the and the the courage of them as representatives of of the people of ukraine is just is just amazing and you know we, we had ups and downs and we've been criticizing the government for you know not taking uh you know bold enough steps or maybe hesitating with some other things but i think it's it's all gonna change after uh you know after the war ends after our victory because it cannot cannot end any other way um um and uh uh yeah and i and i'm very hopeful and i think that you know the, one of the first things we we are gonna do uh, when we, when no, when it's, well, uh, for the lack of a better word, back to normal uh, is is we're we're gonna do we're gonna st- you know we're gonna fix our state institutions once and for all, and because we everybody understands that is, that's an essential thing. In a way, we are now paying the price for not uh, having institutions strong enough, and I mean, uh, starting from Secret Service and you know judiciary or everything that that has to do with justice and security. Uh, because you know, if we had strong enough institutions, then those things might not have happened. Uh, but on the other hand, it is, as you say, bittersweet. It is a chance right now. You know, everybody grew. We, we kind of had a you know a crash course of like statehood, thirty years of statehood in in three days or five days right now. Because uh, yeah, we, we've been hesitating with some things for a while, but now we have, really have to you know get our things together and uh, uh, and and and. To, to to survive, you know, and to prevail. And now uh, I, I don't think anybody will forget this feeling and will forget this um, composure that we all gathered to, uh, you know, to, success, to successfully defend. And, you know, with, with the same composure, with the same energy, I truly believe that we will, uh, you know, we will change the country for, for the better. And, and it's now, I mean, 
the country really became uh, ready now to enter European Union, and now yesterday we submitted the application, and now the, the you know the leaders of Euro- European Union openly say we want them in the union right now, and and I and I really hope the same happens with NATO, and and, and, and you know if, if you uh, because again you know what who. Who fights better right now in Europe, honestly, than Ukrainian army? So uh, th- these are all no jokes, and these these are real perspectives, and this this is what we are committed to, and, and I'm and I'm pretty sure this is this is what's going to happen in in the in the very very near future. The days in Ukraine must be so uh, mixed with emotion. You have people that are going to work to bring food to the markets and all those things. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you have people who can't go to work, who have to hide in the day. What an amazing uh, mix of things going on. Uh, Mikhail, uh, Mikhail, excuse me, The um, we, we hear reports about Russian troops running out of fuel, like literally running out of gas on the side of the road because yeah. infrastructure and supply chains not there. At the same time, though, we are hearing stories about big, long columns of troops making their way uh, into Kiev and that the next few days could be very, very difficult. What are you hearing about the, the advance, advancement on the ground uh, there in Ukraine? Well, I also have one caveat. I'm not a military... Yeah. Sorry, that's uh, that's our security yep. dog uh, bark, barking over there. Um, so we um, <laughs> we uh, um, yeah, I'm not I'm no military expert, and uh, excuse me if I don't have you know all the all the correct data up to date. But um, yeah, there's been columns and columns of, of Russian troops for the for the last five days approaching Kiev and uh, other cities, and they all have been or almost all have been destroyed. Those who haven't have been destroyed later, you know, with, with Bayraktar drones that we got from Turkey with, you know, with, uh, with, with the artillery, with, uh, with many things. And by most of all, of course, with bravery and, and professionalism of our army and, and, and our forces. Uh, so we're not, we're not scared of them. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, and we, and we destroy them effectively. I repeat to do that effectively. We need more arms and more support from our, um, allies and from our partners, such as Canada, such as uh, the U.S., such as the G7 countries, such as you know the whole civilized world. Uh, so please continue doing that. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, we, we, I can't, I can't even say we're not scared anymore. We haven't been scared. It's, it, it is, you know, it is unnerving and it's, and it's not good to be in a state of war. And it is, you know, it is stressful. But we, we are defending our land. We, we know our cause. We're fighting for our lives and for our land and for our freedom, what these guys are fighting for. Why are they there? I've heard, I've heard you know, reports that they are just, well, maybe they're, they're running out of fuel because of the lack of the supply chain. That's true. But some of them just burn up fuel to not go to the war zone. Because, I mean, if I am, if, if I am God forbid, a Russian soldier, and, uh, and I, of course, they, 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 they kind of get some information in some way, and they, and they get the information that they're, you know, their comrades have been destroyed. They have been told that, you know, they'll be met with flowers by the people of Ukraine who are, you know, suffering from whatever Nazi regime, whatever the, the hell uh, Putin, you know, put in their hands. But now, the, you know, the, they're, they're, they're getting here and they, they're getting, you know, bombarded and destroyed. So I, I, I totally understand that they are just, you know, they're just uh, forfeiting and just, just uh, leaving their armored vehicles and, and running away. That's, that's what they should do. Yeah, mix, lots of mixed messaging we're hearing, and uh, some of the soldiers that have been captured, the things that they've been saying. Um, I, I guess they, I'm guessing they probably won't be 
allowed to go back to Russia after this is done for how they've shared their their thoughts about how disappointed they are uh, in what's been going on in Russia. I don't know if you've heard, but the entire world, Mikhailo, has been... Um, has been stopping everything um, from the hockey teams are not allowed to move. The soccer games have all been canceled from all, so many different sports. That's very, um, that's very good. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, well, yeah. that's, a, that's a, okay. I mean, it's the world is literally like, is a hockey game going to stop the war? No, but it certainly sets an exa- sets an example to Ukraine that the world is behind Ukraine. Uh, I mean, if a war is fought over a hockey game, then then we've got this all wrong. But at the same time, if it inspires Ukrainians to know that the world is is behind them, at least symbolically with a hockey game, um, do you think that helps no, Ukrainians like, to know that? Means. Because, yeah. It, it, first of all, yes, the symbolic meaning. But uh, apart from that, that you know, it has deeper um, implications uh, because. Russia, you know, is, is depicting itself as a, you know, great nation or whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, they're great. The only source their greatness comes from is that, you know, everybody's scared uh, of Russia. Now everybody's not. Well, it's still, it's still, again, it's still not good. And it's still, you know, there's still lots of troops. But there's a lot of, you know, offensive potential of Ukrainian, or sorry, of Russian army is gone now. We destroyed them altogether. You know, our fighters with with our with our army, with your you know, with, with your help, with your weapons, we we we're destroying them. You know, in hundreds and thousands, Russia has lost. You know, in in uh, um, personnel and in vehicles um, already um, in four days. Uh, you know, war, war in in Ukraine. The the number compared to the number uh, they lost in Afghanistan in nine years. They're not scary. And uh, what I'm trying to say is removing them from, you know, all, all kinds of um, places where they can um, project their greatness, sort of, is also very important from that point of view. And to, to show that everybody in Russia, and also, I mean, Russia is no democracy. Don't take me wrong. Uh, you know, Putin is, is ruling there. He's a Tsar. But there's still some, you know, that they, they cannot completely ignore people's um, people's reactions it's not North Korea yet so uh, you know people are also people of Russia are also looking oh now, now we cut off from Swift we cannot do this the businesses cannot do payments you know we have to let off workers there's queues in, in the ATMs right now in Russia there is you know the ruble is is uh, is down the, you know it is you know it connects and it builds and you know all these even small things even the hockey games they they apart from the symbolic meaning they project and they tell russian people what the hell are you doing stop doing this and uh, mm-hmm. i think it is very important of course you know let alone the the sanctions you know the military aid this is very important this is extremely important right now well, i know it might sound silly but i want to tell you one last story before i let you go mikhailo that uh, what's the ukrainian word for vodka Oh, it's horilka. It's but it's 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 it's, it's different. It's a wider range. Because vodka is just you know it's just spirit and water. It's that's what it is. Alcohol and water. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, Ukrainian horilka, which we also call you know Russian vodka. Uh, but well, yeah, it is. I don't want to. I don't want to dig very much into the you know. Yeah, uh, no, no. But alcohol, the reason the reason, alcohol, yeah, the reason but, why but, I wanted yeah, to tell you that story is that the. 
Yeah, it is a different word. And so I just want to let you know that the tiny, as silly as this is, the tiniest little things, there are liquor stores and restaurants in, in Canada that are refusing to serve Russian vodka and Ukrainian vodka only. Um, in that, and I know that's silly in the grand scheme of things, but if it, it inspires, silly. it is not silly. It might, it might sound silly. Yes, it does. It does, Shane. Thank you. It, it's not silly. It is very symbolic, and it's you know, it sets. It also sends a message to everybody. You know what Russia really now is, which is now um, you know is not accepted in in any form in anywhere. And, you know, people are refusing, you know, businesses are refusing to, to serve people with Russian passports. That's what they should. Uh, that's the consequence, the, the minimum consequence they should bear. And thank you for doing this. And this is this is really important to to send this message to Russian people and to Russian government uh, that, that, that this should end. I appreciate your time and being so generous. Please stay safe. Mikhailo Zernikov. Thank you very uh, much, Shane. From Ukraine. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. There is one particular story that has come out of Ukraine that is heartbreaking. It's a story of an airplane. And it is there is only one. So I reached out with Ryan's help to get um, a conversation about the uh, AN-225. The Antonov Dream is really um, what we call it out here in English. Uh, Dr. William Allen is with us, Royal Military College of Canada, uh, Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Um, long career in and around the military with an, as an engineer and so much more. Billy, thanks for being here. Really appreciate you sharing time. I don't know about you, but my heart sank a little bit this past week um, with the world's largest plane and a big hole in the top of the hangar. That's what I saw. I'm sure it was not a coincidence either. It's a a sad thing for anyone who has a soft spot for airplanes, as you've described, uh, that you do, Shane. And and, uh, they don't, well, I was going to say they don't make two of those. But I think they they might. They might have another one partly built. But I don't think that's the last we'll see of it. But it's really quite unusual and quite remarkable that, such an incident catches the attention, the sadness, the imagination of so many people from so many walks of life. It's mm-hmm. it's an iconic airplane. So what makes it iconic, Billy? It is the biggest. It's got like 25 engines on it. That's just kidding. <laughs> it's got six. But it is so big. And one of the things that I think that everyone who's listening as not an airplane fan will get is that we've all seen the pictures of a 747 carrying the space shuttle. And uh, that's a big plane. This makes the seven, uh, excuse me, this makes the space shuttle, because it carried it as well a couple times. It makes the space shuttle look like a toy. That's how big this thing is. It it is. And um, to look at, wingspan's a really great thing to look at when it comes to airplanes. And uh, the 747, I think everyone has a pretty good idea. Um, It was known as the jumbo jet. It, It a name like that doesn't, uh, you know, that's a well-earned cachet. Um, when the Americans were making the first really big strategic bombers, the in uh, in the very early forties, late thirties, early forties, they built one that ultimately became the big straddle fortresses and the uh, the B fifty. 
B29 and then B50, I think. In any case, they had the first prototype had a 212 foot wingspan, which is on the order of a 747. They were trying to find out the size of airplanes, like really how big can, how do you make big airplanes? And, um, and this eclipses them. There's, there's, it's, they made the ultimate big, big airplanes smaller than that prototype. And this eclipses it by what, about 60 feet or something? It's another quarter or a 20% bigger. It's, it's staggering the size mm-hmm. of that wing. It's absolutely staggering. I can't help, it doesn't escape me, but I can't help but wonder, like, how much does it cost to fill it? <laughs> like, well, it's, uh, what is it? It's, well, you could figure this out now. You, I got a pencil. Together, we could probably do this. But if you think about it, it's got about, uh, what is it, 600,000 pounds of gas. So that's like, uh, let's just switch it into kilos for people in in Canada here. So let's call it uh, 300, 250,000 kilograms. Let's call it 200,000 liters. Mm-hmm. 200,000. Oh, wow. No, is that right? Yeah, that's about right, I think. Well, you're the engineer, so I'm going to trust your math much more than I'm going to trust mine. Um, well, how many how many trucks is that? What what people think in the size of a truck tank? Right? I would just it's take a like, hundred liters. Probably would be an average, right? Okay, so would we just say that's going to be like two thousand trucks lined up? Two thousand trucks lined up. Unless I've made some zeros wrong, but I'll stop uh, talking about zeros. Still staggering, even if it's uh, even if it's a conservative estimate. Uh, this thing is so big; its record payload was two hundred and fifty three tons of cargo. Like, think about that. <laughs> and that'll be, you're thinking tons like we think, eh? Kind of the old, like pianos. That's yeah. like, I, think, I always think about a, a couple of pianos as a ton. Yeah. So that's a lot of pianos. That's a lot of piano. <laughs> if it's anyone also, knows what a piano is, anyway, actually. It's also, a, um, it's also a lot of wheels on this thing. Indeed. And part of that isn't so much the the airplane itself, because it can land on whatever you design it to land on. But think of the, uh, everyone's seen tarmac in the summer. Um, That has to land and distribute that weight on runways and has to land sometimes with quite a thump. And uh, they cannot sink. They must be able to distribute their weight. They need snowshoes, really, to defend the, to protect the land they're touching down on. Yeah. Kind of, like a, kind of like cross-country skis, really. It is, yeah. That's and amazing. people have been well out there. You've been getting a good powder year. This, these are the fats. Mm-hmm. We want those big fat skis. Um, but wheels and the other thing that's really unique about this airplane are the uh, are the vertical fins, eh? Mm, in the back, uh, really, really big tail, and then and they're they're out of the ends, kind of like some people's visions of all the old bombers. And that's, I think, because the fuselage is such a chunky thing in the middle that anything trying to keep it straight directionally, it has to be out to the left or the right so that it can see some nice clean air. Mm. That's staggering. So staggering, this airplane. So the storyline is now, and nobody's really seen, I haven't seen photos yet. I don't know if you have, Billy, but um, that there was a bomb that went through, some sort of shell went through. There was a fire in the hangar where this thing is stored. Uh, and uh, that the storylines say it has been wrecked. Now, it is possible that there's a little bit of propaganda going on with that. 
But based on what everybody's seen, I mean, if if that plane was in that hangar, which uh, Flight Radar 24 and all the other websites have it as being there, um, you know, that's it's it's trouble regardless. It is. It, it's it's not the airplane isn't uh, it's a strategic military asset for sure, but it's a commercial. It's a huge commercial success. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's iconic. Um, you can't. You can't actually attribute it complete to the U- to the Ukraine. Ukraine built it, the Kiev-based company, but um, it was very much part of the Soviet Union at the time, um, and and so it's got a it's got all the hallmarks of the Russian aerospace industry, and it just happened to be in the uh, in the on and off plant, which is Kiev-based, but it's. It hasn't. I think it does. Uh, you know, military and civilian aviation blur when it comes to strategic transport. Heck, look, it's carrying around the space shuttle, and if you look around in the photos, so it's very much a unique asset, and people probably pay a lot of money to um, get it to do something. And I'll yeah. bet it's always busy. Yeah, and I, I found um, I found some of those numbers online: thirty thousand dollars an hour. Um, wherever you're going is the, is the reported to be us, the base rate. So, you know, it's not going to be cheap. And that means every operating hour that there's a crew there, whether it's being loaded, flown and so on. So, um, that's going to add up real quick. Uh, and you don't even get free Wi-Fi with that. (laughs) Undoubtedly, you don't get free much probably with that. The, (laughs) the, uh, anyone, anyone who's, uh, who might be listening will, will also appreciate the cost of a one-off fleet it's like the owner of an antique car or um, a very unique version of something it's not like you're nipping down to uh, best buy and picking up the missing parts right um the, it's got to be an expensive airplane to maintain and uh care and feeding yeah yeah and um, and i imagine you're you're literally milling your parts at that point for I mean, it's not like you can just order them, right? Well, it, I, I suspect it's fairly well, uh, well, up to now, embedded with the Russian. The Russian aerospace industry is a big aerospace industry, and they're very talented and uh, and and long, long uh, history of of uh, good airplanes. Mm-hmm. They have different ways of engineering, but uh, so you would if you evolved on your own, right? Yeah. In, over the over the centuries, but the. Uh, they would have relied, I'm sure, on uh, on their Russian supply chains, probably weaned away from it in recent decades. Yeah. But but yes, custom parts, I, I'm I'm guessing I, I can't imagine a fleet of one when it's the one, that that yeah. airplane. The plane we're talking about is the Antonov AN-225 Maria, which is the dream or the inspiration it's been called. It's the biggest of all the airplanes, and uh, it was literally gigantic and damaged through the course of what we've seen in the war. The question is how bad. That's what all aviation enthusiasts want to know. Um, Billy, I thought we could talk a little bit about, um, I thought maybe some contrast. When we look at what Russia has and what the Western world has, I find it amazing when things like tanks come up and whatever, and they're like a hundred tanks were wrecked. Like it can't, it's not like old days of world war two, where they used to crank out tanks off an assembly line. These things need to be wired and programmed and all that. And airplanes are very much the same way. Dog fights of back in the day were 
you know, dozens, if not more planes buzzing around each other in the sky. We don't see any of that in today's world. We see one or two interactions that seem to be quick and decisive. Um, This storyline of what is military aviation today must be drastically different. Um, The storyline of old that we keep in our minds must be drastically different than military aviation of today. I I think you're quite right, and and it probably doesn't take um, a, a stretch of the imagination to appreciate how much things have changed. And the the days that we think of, maybe when we were little kids or reading comic books or or the uh, even movies, where you're getting close close in the air, those days are are decades decades old. Those stories are decades old. Um, I think it's fair to say that the what they would call beyond the visual range or BVR. This has been the the way of doing business for a long time. And you need look no further than our, our good friends to the South. If there is a country with huge fleets of airplanes, there's going to be one. And the uh, Americans have reduced their fleet sizes by orders of magnitude. And that's because the air, just the way they fly, the way they fight is different the way they operate something like your Antonov were it to be used in a, in a, uh, even near like what is near a war zone now, let's say a thousand miles. They're going to be very, very well protected. We have bombers taken off from the other side of the world, flying over droppings like with Afghanistan and stuff like that. They would leave from Hawaii or yeah. terrestrial yeah. America. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that is, that was unheard of, of course, when the romantic tales that we were touching on earlier were written or imagined. But um, I, I think airplanes are an extremely expensive resource. So taking one down, well, you've seen uh, stories in recent decades, there's, they're always sad stories. But taking down an enemy aircraft is something that's celebrated by fighting forces by rebels by insurgents it's it's a really big deal it isn't and and uh the crews aside because it's tragic for the crews but um their their mission often is to is to live to fight another day they need to get that asset back home so that it continue to do its good work it's good for them it's bad for other people but the idea of taking one down is it's it's not the stanley cup but it's a really, really big deal. And uh, and we can talk about tactical aircraft, but it's really a strategic asset. It's a re- it, it's a it's larger than just a bunch of uh, nuts and bolts and wheels and wings. Not like the old bombers of the World War II where it was patch up the holes and turn it around and get it out again, right? They could do that. Now nowadays with composites and uh, while well, you were describing some of your uh, days working near the airplanes, you know that uh, the idea of, of bumping into the fuselage of yeah. uh, of uh, say a, a, an eight hundred or a seven eighty seven or something you don't you don't bump into these anymore you don't drop your your wrench on the floor without carefully inspecting because underneath that is not you know rough aluminum anymore it might be a very cleverly contrived composite carbon fiber um, metal composite matrix materials aren't what what we think of when you look at the outside of that airplane anymore. And well, enormous cost, 
but that's all to reduce weight, right? It's amazing. So when we're looking at what does Ukraine have to fight with, I'm assuming, and it is only an assumption, that when you're Ukraine and you used to be the Soviet Union, you probably have a lot of the same tools that the Russians have today. So that also means that you know the weaknesses of the other guy. I'll also assume that Russia's Russia's technology has probably pushed forward at a faster pace than Ukraine's because they were pioneering an awful lot of the technology anyway. So are are they fighting a fight really in today's airplanes that they're just already way behind before they even start? I, I think it's your assessment is is fairly accurate and I I think that is it's my opinion. Um, <clears throat> the Ukraine was left with um, the so the ex-Soviet um, military units on the ground, and that's where they started. And their air force remains large by European standards. It's it's um, well, it's a big it's a big country, um, Ukraine, but their air force is I don't know seventh or sixth or something in scale of on European. Uh, among European air air forces, um, it you're right. Russia has developed some formidable uh, aircraft since the uh, demise of the Soviet Union, whereas Ukraine, I think, has modernized and maintained and and kept their assets uh, to the best of their ability. But I don't think they've ever been in a position to uh, participate in what is what you would maybe the western arms market if you will they're not part of nato and as such they are not expected to be able to interoperate with nato and that means they're not really going to be in the club when it comes to modernizing aircraft so um, unless they were able to um, work through the russian aerospace industry which they probably have they they still have a fair few aircraft but what they are, I think, are the what you would call the third generation aircraft. They've got Su twenty fives and uh, some gr- some ground attack. Um, I don't think they've got any of the modern Sukhois that Russia's flying. Yeah, um, Sukhoi Su twenty seven um, is quoted in my info as I think the newest of their aircraft. The Russians, yes, they've. As far as I know, they've grown that family. I don't know how many, how numerous they are, but the the 30, 34, 35, there's, they have number designations, but they're, they're, they're derivatives of the SU-27, which is a, which is a, a spectacular airplane if you ever get the opportunity to see it. Uh, this is an amazing conversation. I really do appreciate this. Uh, Billy Allen is with the Royal Military College of Canada. I would be um, uh, not an aviation fan if I didn't ask you, um, because those who don't know in Kingston, the Royal Mil- Military College, you know, what's that What's that all about? Why do you love it? You're a part of it. You've been a part of it for a long time. Um, let's take the lens and turn it back on Canada and, and let you be proud of your, your group's work there. Well, actually, you am... I- it's true. It's it's a unique place. The Royal Military College of Canada is uh, one of two. There's one in Saint-Jacques, Quebec. Um, RMC is the oldest, 1876, and one of the oldest uh, universities in Canada. It's got some deep roots in Calgary too. In fact, there's a there's a 
a group of, uh, well, there's quite a large uh, uh, community of graduates to the Royal Military College. It uh, punches higher than its weight. It's a small place with around um, 1,100 students. But I think if you look at the leadership in the country over the last 20, 30 years, you'll find an inordinate number of RMC graduates Primarily in engineering school, it's been less so recently. Uh, oh, engineering is a very big part of it. Um, a lot of uh, business, uh, military strategic studies, the humanities, science, and uh, all the graduates go to the armed forces as officers, without exception. Veterans can attend, uh, reservists, uh, dependents, and graduate students can be from any walk of life in Canada. So provided you're you're a Canadian citizen or a landed immigrant, you can come and do graduate work here. But that's primarily to keep the uh, a rich undergraduate program. You can't graduate without being fit and bilingual. And um, there are four pillars. Bilingualism um, is essential to be an officer, having your degree, obviously. You have to be super fit and you're expected to be a leader. So um, it's a rigorous program. And uh, the West is a big part of it, actually. A lot of Westerners come here. How they find out about it, I don't know. But its I think it's all word of mouth. Hmm. People come here because they find out about it through their moms and their dads and their sisters and their brothers and their uncles or their friend's boyfriend or girlfriend. And it's about uh, 27% women. And um, it, it matches any engineering school in terms, exceeds, I think, in terms of uh, women. And some programs are are uh, are um, both it's a very diverse place in terms of um, representing Canadian society and uh, everything's done in French and English and there's very much uh, an appreciation of the other cultures because Canadian officers have to lead Canadians wherever they may go in the world and they have to be respectful and represent their country when they when they get there um, fourth pillar leadership, how can you avoid it, right? Well, I can tell you this, this world could use more of it. Go Air Force. Pardon me, sorry? About 35%, 40% go Air Force. Our department's the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department, and it's the uh, biggest of the engineering departments, and uh, and of that, well, half it's the aero program. And you get Navy people and Army people, too, because they love airplanes. You can appreciate that. Uh, Billy Allen on the shift. Thanks for being here, Billy. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I wish you well in all you're doing out there and keep up the good work. This is the shift podcast. It's time for DIY and to disco baby. He's a disco dancer. Disco Andy is here on the shift. Handy, AndyMedia.com. Andy Barrar. Uh, welcome back to the program, buddy. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Every time I hear that intro, I'm, I'm just, I can't stop smiling. Up. It yeah, does. It really awesome. does light up. I love up. it. Cool stuff. Uh, let's get right into it here, Andy, because we have plenty to talk about on the program. You've been working hard on your uh, watering program at shifted.ca. You've already posted the video. Uh, your Handy Andy Media and your YouTube page. Great ways to also follow what is that you're... Um, what you're doing 
Um, you, uh, you're trying to create lazy man watering because you hate water. You love plants. You hate watering plants. Uh, that's their basic recap. Where are you at? Yeah. So, um, if everyone remembers, you know, I'm, I'm, I really got into gardening over the last couple of years, but, um, at some point in time, I'll forget to water my plants with sometime in the summertime, maybe a long weekend. I, I just forget and everything dies and it's happened year over year. And then last year we had that big heat dome just when I got new blueberry bushes and everything died. And you know what? I was so embarrassed because I had been talking about it, my new blueberry bushes on this program, and then everything died. So I have not given up. I have now created this kind of DIY water irrigation system using the outdoor taps from my home that every home typically has where you would attach a garden hose. Well, I turned those two outdoor taps into five different taps that are spread across my property so that I can now build these raised garden beds, which I'm currently doing out of old reclaimed fence panels. And then I'm going to all hook this up and Shane, I'm going to start growing food on an almost industrial scale to the point that I will start freezing blueberries. I will freeze kale and spinach. I'll make smoothies and, and juices all through the wintertime because I'm going to grow all this food and then store it. And it really requires this self-watering system to work. And I encourage everybody to go to shiftheads.ca or handyandymedia.com to see the video because now I can finally show how this whole system works. And it's really quite simple when you think about it. It's kind of like using power cords in your house from your outlet to, to get more uh, power around the house. Well, I did the same thing except with water. And it was really hard to explain on the radio, but now I finally have the video, Shane. People can see it in action. And I'm happy to report it actually works. You know, theoretically, all through the winter, I'm like, it should work. It should work. And the only way to find out is if you actually build it. And I'm happy to report that it's working. And now I'm going to the next step. So things are getting really serious in this smart garden that I'm trying to set up. How is your water pressure? Have you had any trouble, struggles with the water pressure? Because you are, you know, you've got a lot of weight going on um, with everything that you've distributed around. Well, this is a great question. See, this system, the way that I've designed it, because I have all these now additional what they're called water spigots, and I'm putting these four valve uh, smart timers on them. So you can set what time these valves will open up and go. So provided that only if I set it up so no, no two valves are turned on at the same time, the water pressure should be okay. So I'm going to have probably anywhere from 16 to 20 zones. I'm going to like write it on a paper. This zone one goes on at this time, stops at this time, then this zone goes on, then it turns off. So as long as I kind of program it and everything's in sync, I shouldn't have a problem. And that's really the next step in this DIY project that I've done. And let's face it, it's just because I don't want to water plants. I've done so much front loading work. This was a big, it's one of the biggest DIY projects I've done in a long time, Shane. So I, I'm really hopeful that it's going to work. Well, call it for like it is. Technology is exactly that. We're lazy. We don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> That's really all it is. Well, you know, and and I can just see the, the future. I know, I kind of have a hunch that they're going to start making these water spigots um, that connect to your phone that you could use these. And, and they have this technology. I've seen it. You can get these little moisturizer uh, for your soil. It tests the, the soil moisturizer. And that will then connect to your smartphone so that you can set the watering system up so that it will use weather patterns. So if you have a lot of rain coming, it won't turn on. And it will use the 
the detection of how much moisture is in the soil to then activate it to, to continue watering. I think that's really where it's going. You're seeing them do it on an industrial scale on farms, but that will come down to the everyday gardener or the lazy gardener, someone like myself, who just wants to build systems that do it automatically. And if you watch this video, there's actually a little tour you can see of my um, greenhouse where I'm growing some vegetables already. And then I just got to transplant those into the system. The, wa the watering is going to happen by itself. The sun's going to happen, obviously. So uh, I basically take myself out of the equation chain and everything's going to work flawlessly. We have no need for Andy anymore. <laughs> End of second. Well, I'm sure I'll find <laughs> something else to do. You know, I'll, I'll jump rope or, or something like that. All right, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You go from making the food, growing the food, to throwing the food away today. Um, talk about composting. Yeah, so, you know, everyone I think is, is um, you know, understands the, how composting works. Well, there's a company that's making a countertop composter that you could have right in your kitchen. So all of your waste you can put into it. Kind of looks like a rice maker and it has a lid. And what it's designed to do is, it's like really, they're, they're trying to design it as the fastest way to compost. So within three to five hours, it can produce dirt that you would then put in your green bin. But if you wait from 16 to 20 hours, Shane, you can actually turn that waste into nutrient-rich soil that you could use for your potted plants. So all your food scrapes, you know, within the next day, you can then, then use it with your plants. The only problem, this sounds so good, Shane, the only problem is, you got to buy these pods that have these probiotics in it that really accelerate the whole process. So that's a subscription fee you're going to have to continue with to have these pods. And it costs $500 US. So wow. I, I think I'm going to stick to the old fashioned uh, composting ways. I, I do have a little composter in the backyard. But you know, Shane, it, it takes a long time for it to, to actually compost. There's like I actually watched YouTube videos about this. There's like a system that you have to do where you have to put like leaves, then you put some maybe dirt, then you put your greens. And if you can do that in that order, it will accelerate it. But uh, composting does take time. And now that you, we're seeing tech companies who are trying to solve it indoors and get rid of the smell. And that's the beauty about this machine called the Lomi countertop composter is it does get that rid of that smell. And that's, I think, one thing that really makes people avoid composting is they don't like that biodegrading smell that compost smell produces. of death um well there are all kinds of different secrets people talk about birth control pills probably not good for the environment works for the hormones for the ground um there's all kinds of cool things that you can do this is a very pretty looking machine that can sit on your countertop even though it's making dirt um and the subscription everything's going to have subscription fees look we as consumers as long as we keep paying subscriptions and commit to those things everything is going to have subscription fees when car manufacturers are talking about making your heated steering wheel be a subscription fee trust me um this might be unavoidable down the road handyandymedia.com it's andy barrar and uh, some diy tech stuff how about some diy phone repair andy yeah so we've been talking about this a lot you know apple and you're seeing that movement of the right to repair well there's a company called fairphone and they're really starting to make a push in Europe, especially in Germany. And they make a modular cell phone. It takes about two minutes to take this entire thing apart. And the whole premise is if something breaks in your phone, say you want a new camera or the battery is dying, you can actually just take it out and then replace it. And I really hope that companies like this are going to take um, 
and become more and more popular over time. And one thing, Shane, that I really want to see is I want companies like Apple, like Samsung to look at these companies and say, you know what? Maybe we should get into this because they always talk about how they're trying to help the environment by using less packaging. But the thing about smartphones is they're actually designed so that you replace them every two years. And like in this day and age, I'm certain we can build a phone that can last longer than two years or like what Fairphone is doing with their new phone called the Fairphone 4, the fourth iteration of this phone, is you just make it modular. So you can take pieces out. Your screen breaks, not a problem. And they're creating these new repair cafes in Europe where if you're not really tech savvy or maybe you are, you can go and, and sit down, have a coffee, fix someone's phone or teach them how to fix a phone. And so it just reduces the e-waste in, in, you know, that, that we're contributing to, especially for something that everybody needs. And so this modular phone, I just really hope it, it takes off. And, I, you know, I, I'm starting to think maybe the next phone I get will be one of these fair phones. I was going to contact them and see if I can get one shipped to Canada and see if it will work with our networks. Let's uh, let's keep in mind a fundamental piece of, of, of life that we get sold today that's crap is recycling. Recycling helps, but it takes energy to recycle. So anybody who says that they're eco, you know, earthy, green, whatever, because they recycle, well, recycling takes energy. So you, they, they, these, these electronic companies say, oh, you just recycle your phone or recycle your phone. Well, that all takes energy, right? It does. So that's why these sustainable pieces, you know, swap out your camera brakes, you swap out your camera and, and get a new one, uh, as opposed to a whole new phone has a big impact on, on what's going on. This is that reuse versus recycle scenario. So just got to call it for what it is. Ah, social media reconnects us, lets us, it's basically like a slideshow for stuff that we're doing that nobody cares about. But at the same time, um, it's a great way to reconnect with some people and find out what's going on in the world. I'm not really sure why we have it. Turns out uh, Russia said no more Facebook because some of the info that was flowing into Russia was basically the global opposition to everything that was happening. And then um, Facebook has turned around and uh, after Russia kind of got in the way and blocked it, uh, they've, they've gone backwards and restricted access the other way. So which way are we going to start? How about the Russia perspective first, restricting social media access, Andy? Yeah, so Russia had started to restrict Facebook over clash over censorship. You know, it's funny that Russia is getting mad at Facebook for censoring. Uh, essentially, what Facebook had been doing was starting to fact check things that were coming out. And oh, it's it a does, novel idea. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny because... A lot of these tools that Facebook is doing, they have learned from all the disinformation that Russia had been putting on Facebook for years and years. But now the conflict is actually in Russia. And a lot of people, Russians in particular, are using Facebook, Twitter and other social media sites like even TikTok to get their, their information because, you know, Russia is trying to control the messaging through through their state-owned uh, media agencies like RT, Russia Today, which, by the way, Shane, I have been watching RT English on YouTube. There's a YouTube live stream of, of it, so you could actually see what the Russians are getting from the, the government propaganda machine. And mm -hmm. wow, it's 
it's well, quite the spin. If you ever want to see a spin, you should watch some RT. That uh, the funny uh, channel. Well, just to clarify, RT was built by Putin as his own media machine, and it has been pulled from most terrestrial broadcasters because it was available in some of the different packages you get with the cable companies. And my understanding um, is that it's been pulled. So really, the only place you can see it now is is that. And I've heard I haven't seen it for myself, Andy. I haven't gone there, but I've heard it's it's not even. Um, different than what we hear. It is wild. Some of the things that claims that are made. Oh, uh, it's it, it's just mind boggling. Like because it has that that look and feel of a news program where you would get your traditional news. You know, like a morning show and a news show. But man, is it one sided? And the reason why I started watching it was when the U.S. government came out and said. Russia is about to start this huge mis misinformation, propaganda, false flag operations. They're going to push it through their media channels. And that's when I was like, oh, I've got to see this. I want to see this Russian propaganda in action. And if they would still do it after the U.S. called them out. And sure enough, they did. And it, it, I, I'm really happy that they blocked it, Shane, because what, what they were doing, especially just before the invasion, is they were making these false flags like a, a car bombing. And it was only the RT reporter just happens to be the only person that's covering this bombing who just happens to be right there. The timing was perfect. But the one mistake that a lot of Russia is making with social media is they don't realize that there's a lot of metadata in videos and images that you post online. So people are starting to look at the metadata and noticing that these videos that are going, they were recorded a couple of days ago. And, and so these things are being called out. And there's actually an organization online called Bellingcat. And it's, a, it's made of analysts and investigative journalists. And they're combing through all of this social media stuff that's being posted and fact-checking it with available publicly sourced data and looking through that metadata to see what is real and what's not. And what they're finding is there is a lot of Russia misinformation. Like There is just so much. It's hard to keep up to date with it. But all of these organizations are trying to collect all of this because they actually believe a lot of this stuff that we're seeing on social media will be used as evidence for war crimes potentially in the future. Yeah. So this there's is been why some conversation about it. yeah about the war crimes. There's been, this is the Hague has been there's been some talk about that too. That's also interesting. Uh, there's a couple things that I saw. I saw uh, there was a Russian Twitter account that got shared wildly of uh, when the invasion started and they were basically projecting power of Russia. What it was, it was videos from Crimea from six years ago and um, all these jets flying over in formation and all this stuff. And they were old, old, old videos. And so things like that are out there. And don't get me wrong, propaganda happens. Uh, I mean, propaganda is basically marketing with a political agenda. That's really what it is. And so it's going to happen and it can get wild at times. It is absolutely manufactured. I can tell you this. If I was a Russian soldier and then I heard on the Russian news that there was threats of a chemical attack in the city that I was in, Ukraine is threatening some sort of nasty thing. I'd be really worried because the false flag notion is that Russia would launch that same attack on their own people just to instigate the war. Now, Facebook, we've only got about 45 seconds, Andy. Facebook has also started to stop the misinformation. Um, what, what have they done? Have Google has done it too? Is it new algorithms? 
Yes, well, they're changing the algorithm. Google with uh, Google Maps is stopping the live updates. So as people are trying to flee cities, you're not going to see those traffic updates. And I think that's really good because they're trying to protect it. So these social media companies are starting to to beef up to, to stop the spread of min- misinformation. But you had to know that they knew this was coming. So you wonder mm. how, if they're being proactive or reactive when it comes to this invasion. Well, they're most certainly being reactive, and it seems to be, uh, should be no surprise for anybody to know that this was coming. But at the same time, in all fairness, if we want to look at both sides of that, there was an awful lot of Ukrainian people. They themselves didn't believe it was going to be this nasty, and they've said it on many news channels from many different places around the world. We didn't think it was going to be like this, and that's why we didn't leave. HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy Barrar. Thanks, bud. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.